Praise the Lord. All right. Want to invite you uh, to. Uh, Want to invite you to start drawing your fellowship to a close, and find your uh, find your place to set. And when you get there, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 21. This morning we will continue our study in Matthew as I will um, take us from verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Today I hope that what we see is that Jesus is going to engage the Pharisees and the religious leaders in what will be three parables. We'll cover the first two today. What I hope that we see out of these parables is that Jesus is teaching these religious leaders that what God expects from us is religious uh, uh, is obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart. Um, I thought it would be a, a, a appropriate example to start out as one of the parables will be about father and sons. To think about obedience from the heart like this, every parent who has siblings, two uh, or more, has had the experience of asking one sibling to apologize for a behavior to the other. So let me paint the picture. And, and if, you're, if you've never experienced this with, you know, in your kids, then you've just done a, a fantastic job of parenting, much better than I have. But for around our house, there were those opportunities where one child had done something inappropriate to the other, and then as a parent, we invited that child to apologize. And out of obedience and through grit teeth, they said, I'm sorry. Now, for any of us, is that obedience? I mean, it's an outward action that, that was responded to um, force. Really, it didn't respond to anything except a selfish heart that was wanting to escape punishment. <coughs> so they made the outward action happen, but it came from an unchanged heart. And through the parables today, I hope that what we see is that God is always interested in the change of our hearts, that the goal of repentance and salvation is a changed heart. Lip service can come out of a proud heart, but true obedience is not meant to, get the, um, uh, to, to manipulate a situation to get what we want. True obedience is meant to please the authority over us. And our outward actions, Proverbs 4.23 says, always flow out of an, uh, the, the, our hearts. And so ritual without repentance doesn't move God at all. And we'll see that. And so Jesus is always teaching towards the heart. When we were back in Matthew chapter 5 and we began Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what we heard was how many times Jesus was taking the Ten Commandments, which had become ritual and conformed a person on the outside, and Jesus would take them and say something along the lines of, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And what he did in every one of those instances was take a, a, a command of God that could have been just the outside, and he pressed it in towards the heart because Jesus always taught towards a changed heart. And actually God's promise for us out of the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36 is that salvation would be a new heart, a 
a soft heart, a heart made alive by God's spirit. So as we go through these parables today, I hope that that's where we land, is that the God is after our changed hearts. With that in mind, what we, I would like to do is to read the parables, starting in chapter 28, I'm sorry, and we will read to the end of the passage, uh, chapter, and then we will pray and get into the, uh, into the text. So read with me, chapter 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And his son answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same, and he answered, Oh, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They, which are the religious leaders around, said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believed in him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, will you now give us ears to hear by your spirit, your word, so that it will be to us more than a lesson about another people. 
It will be to us more than intellectual knowledge, but it will be to us your words making our very soul come alive. That it will do to us more than challenge us to conform the way that we act, but it will convict us in our hearts about the areas in our hearts where we still resist your authority over our lives and act in rebellious autonomy, thinking that we have the right to make choices for ourselves and enjoy the fruit of our labor outside of your will, outside of your word for us. Lord, will we hear these words and will they challenge us in our hearts about our obedience to you so that we would be conformed by these words more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, not because of the way that we act on the outside, but because of the, what it does to our hearts that result in the way we live our lives. For your glory, Lord, and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If we go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 21 very quickly and we think about how we've gotten to the parables, in chapter 21 at the beginning, Jesus is coming into uh, Jerusalem and uh, we talked about it as his, his triumphant entry, his, his last time to come into this city. And as he does, there are those in the crowd that, that start to cry out, Hosanna. And what they're doing is they're, they're quoting from Psalm 118. They're quoting from Psalm 118, chapter, uh, verse 25 and 26. And if we go there, we're going to come back to Psalm 118. And so I'd invite you either to like put a pencil there, a pen, or maybe put your finger there, because we're going to come back and visit this chapter in just a minute. But there in verse 25 and 26, as they cry out when Jesus is coming in, Psalm 118, 25 and 26 say, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And they're cry, crying out to Jesus as he's coming in on a donkey, expecting that he is going to be this Savior who's going to give them success. And ironically, the Psalms uh, says, we cry out from the house of the Lord because that's exactly where Jesus is headed as he comes in. And so as he rides in, he goes into the temple, which at that time would have been the very heart of worship. And Jesus rides into the city and people expecting something from Jesus, expecting something good for themselves from this prophet, are willing to worship him. But as he gets into the very heart of their worship, he sees the corruption there. And flipping over the tables, he declares that this, the temple, was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a place where God and man communed together. But instead, the temple had become a den of thieves, full of other activities other than God and man communing together. And so Jesus, after the, he does that, goes and he sees a fig tree. And he's hungry and he goes to the fig tree. And we talked about he expects fruit, but there's no fruit there. 
And we can see in another one of the parables where Jesus tells his followers that a good tree brings forth good fruit because of the roots. It's a good tree. But a bad tree brings forth bad tree uh, fruit because the roots, its, its very essence is a bad tree. And he curses the fig tree, indicating that it's got an issue with it. Its roots aren't right because the fruits aren't there. And he goes from there and now he's being questioned by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. By whose authority do you do these things? Quick note. Never want to get in a battle of wits with God. And Jesus does what he does and he turns it on them and says, I'll answer you if you answer me. And so if we go up just a little bit from where we are, he says to them, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they, they stutter with their answer. They're being, they're being shamed because God, Jesus knows that he's got them. They, they can't answer the way they want to answer because they fear the people. And so they hem-haw around and then Jesus says, because you don't give me an answer, neither do I answer you. But the book of Matthew is now going to give three parables back to back that are Jesus' answer to them. By whose authority? Jesus is about to claim it as his authority as God. And he's about to show them that all, their, all of their religiosity is missing the point because God's been after their conformed heart their new heart all along. And their heart hasn't changed, and so their religion is dead. He tells it in this way. And in my mind, as I, as I was studying this and reading it, I can picture these religious leaders being embarrassed by, by Jesus as he's like, I won't answer, if you're not answering me, I'm not answering you. And I could almost see them kind of slinking away. Like that didn't, that didn't go like we thought it was going to go at all. And as they're in their robes and they're kind of trying to get away, I can picture Jesus picking it up in verse 20, uh, 28 as they're slinking away. And he's like, hey, 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 what do you think? And I said, oh, oh, man, do we really have to go back into this, this crowd of people where Jesus has already kind of shamed us and now he's still talking. And he puts them on the spot. What Jesus is doing is asking questions to reveal their heart to them. Much like when we as parents maybe come home and we ask our kids a question that we know full well what the answer is. Why do we ask a question? Because a question is a way to get them to think and them to reveal what's in their heart. So Jesus asked a question by telling this parable. The parable is of two sons. And Jesus in this parable is pointing out that the greatest need of these Pharisees and religious, the greatest need of their heart was not to get the question answered, where did John's baptism come from? The greatest need of their heart was to have repentance and a new heart. And so he confronts them with this. I want you to notice that neither son is perfect in this parable. As it, I, I think the parable is, is showing us a picture of humanity. 
Neither of the sons are perfect. I don't think either of the sons represent fathers, maybe what we want from a son. If we went into our two sons and asked them to clean their room, it would be inappropriate for the one to say no, and it would also be inappropriate for one to say yes, but not do it. We would want more than that. We would want a son that would say yes and then go do it. So first see that I don't think the parable is meant for us to really hold up either option as what we're shooting for. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus goes to the first son. And I want you to notice as we read the son's response. The son doesn't ask to be excused from the work. Notice the rebellious pride in his answer. A man had two sons, and he went into the first and said, Son, go work in the field today. And he answered, I will not. Dads, did you just get like a twitchy belt hand right there? If your son looked at you and you're like, clean your room, and he's like, no, dad. (laughs) Right? Get that belt off quick. Look, look that, that's the way I, I, that I see this answer. This answer wasn't like, well, you know what? Can, can I in, in a little bit, or I, I've got a lot to do, or you, you don't realize this is blatant refusal to authority. I won't. But after speaking that way, it says that the son... changed his mind and went. The son repented and then rose up to go into the, to, to work in the field. And Jesus is going to say this is representative of those people, the tax collectors in just a minute, and, and the prostitutes and the sinners, who when they heard John's preaching were living a lifestyle that was in blatant rebellion against all that God had asked them to do. They were wretches. But when they heard the word of God, spoke through his prophet John, and he spoke and said, repent for the kingdom is near, that God's word had an effect on their heart. And they repented in their heart. And the obedience of their repentance was that they rose up to go in and work the field as they had been commanded. And then Jesus looks and, and continues and says, but there's another son. And he went to the other son and, and asked him the same. Does that mean he said, son, go work in the field today? And the son said, I go, sir. How many of you are familiar with the name Eddie Haskell? <laughs> so... If you know, leave it to Beaver. For those that aren't, Eddie was the the picture of the the person who, when authority was around, was always very quick to obey, and on the outside was, yes, sir, no, ma'am. But if you remember the show at all, as soon as the authority disappeared, Eddie was the one tempting the Beaver to always do the wrong thing. Or Wally, his older brother. And here's the second son, and this is the picture. The father goes to him and says, go work in the field. And he's like, yes, sir. On the outside, he's got it all right. 
the, the other brother with, no, what an ugly picture. And here's a brother that on the outside looks like it's, he's doing it the right way. Yes, sir, I'm going. Except as soon as authority's not around, his unchanged, selfish heart chooses to live like he wants to, not as he's been asked to do. And the parable is that one son had a change of heart that resulted in a change of action. The other son's heart was never changed, even though on the outside he tried to respond the right way. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, this wasn't meant to be an order thing where like, hey, don't worry, you're getting in too, but they get to go first. It's kind of like, man, if you consider both of those, like, they're coming in way before you. Because see, a change of heart. If you remember when Jesus was teaching on the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he ended that sermon by challenging them and, said, and saying, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. You won't get into the kingdom. What was Jesus indicating? That God's people aren't the type of people who memorize and learn outward responses so that when they're in positions where they can be seen or heard as responding right to the authority of God, that that's what God's looking for. But God's always been looking for a people whose heart is changed by the grace of God as they realize that they were the rebellious, no, I want to live like I want to live. But that by God's grace, God's word began to chip away at that hard heart until the day that God gave them repentance. And that their repentance wasn't just a time of sorrow and tears over what they've done, but that repentance was a turning in the heart from the idea of living like I want to live to embracing God's authority for my life and then obeying Him. Repentance isn't just tears. It's turning and obedience. I want, to t- I want to say something and make this very clear. I'm not talking about earning your salvation or that because you work real hard, God's going to save you. Earning your salvation has the motive of working in the field so that the Father will love you. I'm talking about effort that comes in your sanctification because he has called you son in the first place and asked you to work in his field. And you're like, because of what you've done, I want to give all of my effort because I respect your authority and I love you as my heavenly father. That's what God is after in his children. A changed heart from a changed relationship that from the inside says, I will give everything I have 
And that's so different from the natural state of humanity that says, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, I know you're a God that created everything. I know you've got authority over everything. But in this moment, as I look at the tree and consider the apple that's in front of my eyes, I think that apple looks really, really good. Fruit, I call that apple. I, I don't know. It's probably a Granny Smith apple, to be honest with you, because they've been bitter ever since. When humanity and our representative head of Adam and Eve stood there in front of their temptation, what did their heart say? There is a God and he has authority, but from the heart, I want the autonomy to choose right and wrong for myself. And even when it means breaking relationship with authority, I value my autonomy from the heart. I want what I want. And so they chose because she said the apple, the, the fruit looked good for food and it was pleasing to the eye. And she reached her hand out and touched it and then took and ate and gave it to her husband to define for themselves what was right and wrong. And I would suggest that from that point on, humanity has always been in that state. The Bible says that we're fallen. And so the first parable is that Jesus is saying there were two sons, they were both fallen, neither of them were perfect, but the one put on a pretense of perfection on the outside, but his heart wasn't changed, and that's not good enough. God was after the changed heart from the one who at least said, with remorse, I repent, and I'll rise up, and I'll go and work as the Father has asked me to do. Jesus is telling them, he's confronting these Pharisees with what would have been the scum of the earth. And saying, those people, they go into the kingdom of heaven. I think back to another place in the Bible where Jesus tells the story of a tax collector who's standing beside a Pharisee and they're both looking at the temple and the Pharisee says, I thank God I'm not like that guy. And this guy just thumps his breast and says, oh God, have mercy on a sinner like me. Where is the heart? Because that's what God is Interested in. Luke chapter 7, 29 through 30 records their responses. Remember, Jesus is teaching in light of, in light of their uh, asking, he's asking them about John and they're teaching about authority. And I want you to just see how Luke tells of these same people's response when they heard John. Luke chapter 7 Verse 29 and 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God was just and having been baptized with the baptism of, baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Get it. What Jesus is telling these people is, even when you heard God's word through the prophet and, and it didn't move you, you even got to see other people's lives being changed in front of your very eyes and it still didn't move you. You still rejected him. And that's why Jesus tells them, even when you saw it, you didn't afterwards change your mind and believe in him. No excuses. And now I can see them, the same people who had just been trapped in their questioning, like we're trying to get away, 
trying to get away. And then Jesus is like, oh, what do you think about? And they're like, oh. And, and then they come back, and now Jesus is, you know, kind of let them have it. And here they are like, okay, finally we're done. He's like, here another parable. And they're like, oh, here we go. Because Jesus is pressing in to the heart now. And here's the other parable. The other parable was about the vineyard. And surely, surely, Jesus had in mind Isaiah 5. And so I want to invite you to go to Isaiah chapter 5 and read it first before we see some similarities and make a couple observations of differences. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? that I have not done for it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make a waste in it. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they not rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed; for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus, in these moments, is speaking to the house of Israel via their religious leaders. This was the choice people that God had chosen out of all the peoples, out of the, 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 the fall of Babel, that he chose one man and Abram, changed his name as he brought him into the promised land, gave him great promises to him and to the patriarchs after him, that God would have a people, and then challenged that people as he drew them out of slavery of Egypt and walked with them in faithfulness in the wilderness to say, I'm making you a special people to me, that through these laws that I'm giving you on Mount Sinai and through the sacrifice and the priesthood, that you'll be a light to the rest of the nations, that they will be able to see how far humanity has fallen and the consequences of not living in right relationship with the Lord when they see your lives and how you're blessed because you are living for God. And those people that knew all of that were watching for the one thing that God had promised them in Genesis chapter 3.15, that one day the Messiah would come and he would make all of that right. And Jesus is surely looking at their religious leaders now after 400 years of silence of the Old Testament being over in Malachi and saying, here I am and you're rejecting me and I'm challenging you as the people of God and you're rejecting me and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to turn now from Israel and I'm going to turn to the church. 
a mixed group of people from the Gentiles and from the Jews that will be my people. And you know what? They're going to have a change of heart. And we'll see it. It's going to happen in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and makes dead hearts alive. And they're going to, I'm going to write my name on their hearts. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And they're going to have, have a change in heart that results in being a changed people. And I'm turning from you. And we'll see in history that just a few years later in AD 70, the wrath of God that comes against this vineyard of his people in Israel, as Jerusalem and the temple is utterly destroyed, that house of worship that Jesus went into is so destroyed that to this day it's not been built again. Because that style of worship, that outward legalistic style of worship to bring a sacrifice is no longer what God wants. Because God has said, now for my people, you are a living sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 12, or Romans chapter 12. Well, what's a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12? Those people who are not transformed by the world, no longer conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of their mind because of the Spirit of God. That's what he's after in these parables. And so he tells them in this parable, I'm, I'm sure that the religious leaders also knew Isaiah 5. There's a vineyard, there's a wine vat, there's a hedge, there's all of these things. They, they know what Jesus is getting at here. But instead, of the, in Isaiah 5, the fruit was bad. And now what he's saying to these religious leaders is it's the workers. It's their heart that's bad. Don't just look at the, the, the fruit of the results, but what's bad is the hearts of the workers. And he says it in this way, as we read, and we won't reread it all for time's sake. But he says that these workers somehow got into a contract with a landowner. This would have been very, very common in Palestine at the time, where these um, large landowners would not live there, but they would rent out the farmlands or the, the vineyard lands to, to workers and they would move away and then they would send people back either for money at the end of the season to get their share or for the, the crop at the end of the season to get their share. This would have been a very, very familiar example, except that in those times in Palestine, as far as historical data, it seems like the owners who moved away, a lot of times were the bad guys that found ways to swindle their tenants out of more and more of the crops and more and more of the money. And weirdly in this parable, the owner of the land is not swindling anybody. He's not a bad guy. In this parable, the owner is incredibly patient and generous and continues to send over and over his servants to warn his tenants of their wicked ways and give them a chance to give him what he deserved. These tenants somehow came into a contract with this owner. And yet, though they had, had in some sense signed up in this contract that said, I will work the fields, but the produce that that's, comes out of it is yours. But somehow they had gotten in their mind that the produce should be theirs that what came out of their efforts should belong to them. 
even though they were rightly in a contract that said, no, no, it belongs to you. They'd gotten in their minds that it belonged to me. What I produce with my life belongs to me. And because that it's gotten into their heart, it gave them the right to mistreat others. It gave them the right to do violence if needed, to get what belonged to them. It gave them the right to kill if needed, to get what belonged to them. It gave them the understanding that somehow they could beat God himself to get what belonged to them. That's crazy. But sin's insanity. And Jesus is revealing to these people the problem with the tenants is that in their heart, they had stopped reverencing the owner as the authority who rightfully deserved the fruit of their labor. And instead, they started to think that the, what they produced with their life belonged to them. These are just stories in the Bible. They probably have no relevance for our lives at all. When I studied this week, I, this just hit me to, in such a place that I just often had to take moments and just go, Lord, what, what areas in my life do I still, if I'm honest, in my heart, operate under this assumption that what I, this area of my life belongs to me? Well, you can have this area and you can have this area, but listen, there are the, there's some areas, Lord, I just, I, I, I want them. And God keeps tapping at the heart of his people. Don't, pre- don't pretend obedience. Lean into me. It's like the Lord kept telling me this week, just lean into me. I'm, I'm working to change your heart. I see three things out of this parable that I, I, I loved uh, this week. One, that the owner of the vineyard is clearly God in the parable. And look, who he pre- look, look who he's, what he's presented as. Gracious and merciful, patient, and giving, and giving, and giving. Sending messenger after messenger, sacrificing his own people for the good of trying to reach the tenants' hearts. But also, that there is a time that he's coming himself back to the vineyard. And when he comes the wrathful vengeance will be absolute in judgment against those wicked tenants. Or the way the tenants themselves said, he will come put those wretches to a wretched end. God that we serve is a patient God. But there is a day. And when that day happens, it's too late. But now is the time of repentance and salvation. The other thing we see in here is that when Jesus is referring to the son as this, um, in this parable, he separates the son in, entirely from other messengers. Jesus isn't saying that the son is just another prophet who's come to speak God's word to the people. There's the prophets and the messengers who have come, and then Jesus carves out this other category, the son. Jesus is calling himself in this, the son of God the son of the owner, the one who has all authority over all of the produce, over all of the crops. He's the one that has the inheritance that they're after. And so just another area in the Bible where people are like, Jesus never claimed to be God, except all the areas that he does. 
And the last thing that we see out of this parable, I think, is humanity. And like I've already said, humanity is, is represented in this parable as being those who have rejected, even though they understand the authority of the owner and at some point confessed, like, we'll get into this contract because you've given us all the stuff that we're working with. But somehow in their fallen state of, of mind, they began to believe that everything that they do really should be theirs. Absolute self-centered rebellion. Absolute desire for autonomy in every place in their life. Nobody tells me what to do. And is that not what people still wrestle with? If we're honest, isn't that, if we'll in, look into our own hearts, isn't that still where we're wrestling? And oh, that we would surrender every part of our heart to the Lord. Jesus responds to them quickly as we, as we start to wrap this up in something that doesn't seem to go together when he says, have you never read the scriptures? Listen, that, that would be like uh, such an insult if you're a student of the Bible for somebody to tell you like, have you never read the Bible? But that's what he's telling these Pharisees. And then he quotes this quote. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone that was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Real quick, I want to show you the, a word play that's going on here that is just genius to me. But in Hebrew, the word son is ben, right? The first part of the parable, they've rejected the ben. In Hebrew, the word stone is eben. And you see how wonderfully he's like, not only did you reject the Ben, but now you've rejected the A-Ben. And let me tell you where that comes from. So go back where your pencil or finger was in Psalm 118. And remember that when Jesus had come in in Matthew 21 in the first part, in Matthew 21, 9, they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is chapter 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And then they were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is chapter uh, 118, 26. I want to back you up to chapter 118, 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous, his eyes. Jesus has taken what they were crying out, the children were crying out when he was in the temple, offensive to these religious leaders. And he's just going right back and concluding that story. How is it that Hosanna, Hosanna, save now is happening? It's happening because God is about to make a sacrifice on the cross. And for all who will say, I'm the wretched son who told God, no. I own my life and I'm going to live my life the way I want to. No, I want you to go work in the field. No. But by God's grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, 
the cornerstone that was laid. By God's grace, we have come to a place of repentance and said, my heart now no longer, my heart doesn't want to be autonomous. I'm terrified of being autonomous. I look in the mirror and see a cruel taskmaster looking back at me. I don't want him ruling my life. He's only ruined it. I want the goodness of the Lord God Almighty who sent his son to die to release me from this slave master to rule my life. Because that God is good. And what he produces out of my life is so much better than what I could produce. But oh, the fallenness that exists in men's hearts to say. Even knowing that I serve a good God, I would rather make my choices for myself. And Jesus looks at them and says, for those two people, 43, therefore I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another people producing fruit. Skipping down to 45, what their uh, their response was, they didn't like it at all. And when the chief and the Pharisees heard, they perceived that he was speaking about them and had just made... Here's Jesus right in front of them. And it just keeps making them reject him more. But verse 44, there's a couple different ways to see this verse because of some of the quotes in the Bible. I want to present it this way. There's two actions represented in this verse. One is that something is falling on the stone and one is that the stone is falling on someone. For those who hear Christ's call, for those out of the first parable, for those first sons who are absolute rebellion, who don't want God to tell me, like, I don't want Christianity. It's a bunch of rules that are going to rule my life and I want to live my life the way I want. But for those that will hear by grace through faith, God's Spirit call us. We're being called to fall on the stone, on the Eben, on the sun and be broken. Fall on the sun and be broken. Confess your sins. Confess, oh God, if I'm being, I, I, I just, you already know my heart, so I might as well be honest with you. There are some places in my heart, Lord, that I'm wrestling to surrender to you. And so instead of continuing to pretend to have some form of obedience out here, Lord, I just want to be honest with you and just go change my heart. Lord, keep changing my heart. I want to belong to you more and more and more. And I believe God hears those prayers and answers them. Fall on the sun and be broken. Or there will be a day where the sun falls on you. And it says it will crush you in eternal brokenness God is always about changing the heart today what I think we get anything out of these parables is that God is not after ritual he's not after a performance God wants your heart to be knit to his because out of the heart flow the issues of life God wants to transform each of us more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Because out of that, he blesses everything around. And one day, though now imperfectly, one day when we get to be in his presence, we'll have fullness, fullness of joy. The opposite of that is to say that somehow in this broken world, through my broken life and broken decisions, I'm going to try to steal as much happiness as I can. And I would just invite you in every area of your heart that still says no to God, fall on him and be broken. There is nothing that you can steal in moments of sinful disobedience that has anything but guilt and shame attached to it. And God wants to free us all of that. Fall in the sun and be broken. Let me pray for us as the music team comes and we continue worship. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that, that this morning we have caught the gist of your parable. I confess, Lord, that in my heart, I know how to be churchy. In my heart, uh, or in my life, Lord, in my actions, I know how to perform. But I also confess, Lord, on behalf of all of us, that there are still places in our heart that why we may be able to perform, we still need to be transformed. We need to be broken. Lord, somehow because of the way in our fallenness, each of us feels like we have the right to live our lives. We have the right to be happy. We have the right to pursue things that we think that, we are, that are going to gratify us or be meaningful to us. But even in that very concept, Lord, we're missing that we belong to you. You gave us a universe to sustain life. And then you gave each of us a physical life to live in that universe. And then every one of us who belongs to you, you gave your life so that we could have new life in you. You own each person here in every way, Lord. What right do we have to tell you no except the insanity of our fallen nature that drives us to be abusive in situations, dishonest and manipulative trying to gain the fruit of happiness in this life. And all the while, Lord, you're promising us joy with no end in a new creation if we'll fall on you and broke, be broken and surrender. So, Father, I ask that your Spirit would work in us, not just in these moments of church gathering, but throughout this week, that your Spirit would tap on the places in our heart that we know that we haven't surrendered to you because we feel anxious and we feel fear and we fear, feel rebellion. And even in ways, Lord, we feel cheated because something that we want is being taken away from us. Would you tap on those areas by your spirit? And would you give us the grace to repent and rise up and work the works of repentance and go into your field, Lord, as your servants? In Jesus' name, amen.